Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Thousands of you have asked me over and over again where you can get a hold of the music for the Truth and Justice podcast. Well, today's the day. Johnny Rose of Slightly Subversive Music has created a soundtrack for the show. The soundtrack is now available on iTunes, and it's called Truth and Justice, The Music. If you're interested in purchasing Johnny Rose's music, you can go to truthandjusticemusic.com to listen to a preview. He's got the website up and running with links to iTunes, and there's about a five-minute preview on the website. The preview has a few seconds from every track on the album. If you've been a loyal Truth and Justice listener, I would highly encourage you to go check it out and download the soundtrack. Like I mentioned last week, all of the proceeds for these purchases go directly to Johnny Rose. He has volunteered his time to create all of the music for all of the shows all the way since episode number three, and he's never taken any money for his work. This is not something that Johnny asked to do. This is something that I asked him if he would do because I wanted him to be rewarded for his work. So please, if you like the music, go to truthandjusticemusic.com and check out the soundtrack today. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. I'm your host, Bob Ruff, and I want to thank you today for joining me in this very special episode. In today's show, I'm going to walk you through Adnan Syed's PCR hearing that occurred in Baltimore last week, and I'm going to take you through the hearing in real time. Throughout the course of the hearings last week, myself, Seema Iyer, Rabia, Susan, Saad, all of us took a lot of video and a lot of audio recordings during the course of the week. My intention today is to use that audio to take you back to what was happening in the moment during the days of the PCR hearing. I was in Baltimore sitting with Anand's family at the hearings for days one, two, and three. Unfortunately, on Friday, the hearing was extended for two more days and I had to return home, so I wasn't able to attend the last two days. Luckily, everyone kept me informed. I spoke a lot with Rabia, Susan, again Saad. I even heard from Krista, who you'll hear from in this episode towards the end. So I hope this format is something that you guys will enjoy. I know a lot of people followed me on Periscope as well as all the others. But that huge number that was following us on Periscope pales in comparison to the massive number of listeners that are just listening on the podcast. So some of you who watch the Periscope videos may have heard some of this before, but 99% of you have not heard any of this material. So without wasting any more time, let's get started on the post-conviction relief hearing of Anand Syed. As Anand's hearing was quickly approaching, I honestly had no intention of going. I really wanted to be there, but my schedule has just gotten so crazy over the last couple of months that I've been on the road a lot, and I've been away from my family a lot, and have been having to play a lot of catch-up here on the weekends when I return from my trips to get the episodes ready. So a few weeks before the hearing, I had decided that I wasn't going to go. 
And part of that decision was because I thought, what use am I going to be? I'm not a lawyer. I'm not part of the legal team. I would really just be there as moral support. And I knew that there would be plenty of moral support. So I had made the decision to stay home. But as the hearing date was approaching, I started to have this nagging feeling. I was having trouble falling asleep at night. All I was thinking about was the hearing, morning, noon, and night. I just couldn't shake the feeling that I was supposed to be there. Finally, on I think it was the Thursday night before the hearing, I had trouble falling asleep. My brain was going crazy about the hearing. And then once I finally did fall asleep, I had kind of a crazy dream. And I know a lot of this sounds crazy, but these just aren't things that I take lightly. So in this dream, I was sitting in a room. Rabia was there. Susan was there. Saad was there. And Adnan came walking into the room. And emotions were high and people were clapping and crying and saying hallelujahs. And everyone was so excited that Adnan was free. And in my dream, I turned to Rabia and I gave her a hug and I told her, See, I told you Asia didn't even matter. Now, I didn't know what that meant at the time, and to be honest, I still don't know what it means now because Asia did a wonderful job of testifying, and I think she's going to be a huge asset to the case. But something about that dream just made me feel like I'd need to be there. So I sent Robbie a text early the next morning and told her about the dream and told her that I was thinking about going. And of course, she was very excited and told me I should absolutely go and that she can definitely get me into the courtroom and I could even sit with her and the family. So very quickly, I got online, I bought plane tickets, I reserved a rental car, and before I could book a hotel, Saad got a hold of me and told me that I could stay with him while I was there. So all my travel plans were booked, and Tuesday afternoon, the 2nd of February, I got on that plane and headed to Baltimore. I had some issues with my flight, things were delayed a little bit. I was starting to worry that I wasn't going to get there in time. You see, Tuesday night was the night of the community event and prayer meeting at the mosque, and I really wanted to be there for Rabia and the family. My flight did end up making it in on time, but just barely. I got off the flight, went straight into my rental car, and headed directly to the mosque and got there just in time. It was a weird feeling. I was actually really nervous going to the mosque. I had never been to one before. I didn't know what to think. I didn't know what they would think of me. I was even concerned about the clothes I was wearing because I had intended on changing clothes into something nicer before I went to the event. But I walked into the mosque, the country boy, the straight white Christian guy from Michigan, wearing my flannel shirt and old blue jeans, and was greeted by nothing but love. Overwhelmingly, everyone was so incredibly nice to me. The first person I met was Yusuf, who recognized me right away when I walked in. He immediately ran over and shook my hand and was just so appreciative to me, which admittedly was almost a little embarrassing for me because I don't feel like I had too much to do with what was going on last week. I've certainly been a supporter, but it was really the undisclosed team and really specifically Susan Simpson that uncovered the information that led to this hearing. But in any case, it was just amazing to see how excited Yusuf was. And then he drags me over to Shamim, his mother. Adnan's mom was also incredibly grateful. She shook my hand. It was nothing but smiles and just couldn't stop thanking me enough for coming. And so it was amazing. I was really keyed up and I was really nervous to walk into the mosque just because I didn't know what they would think of me. But I immediately felt welcome. The next person I met was Saad Chowdhury. And Saad was great. He ran over, shook my hand, gave me a hug, thanked me for coming. And I was just starting to feel right at home already. Saad took me up to a front row seat right next to Michael A. Wood. So it was really cool to meet Michael too. 
I spoke with Michael on the phone several times, and we text back and forth quite a bit, but I've never actually met any of these people. So I got to meet Michael and his wife and his daughter, and we hung out for a little bit until Robbie finally walked in the room. And that was another really emotional moment for me, was actually meeting Rabia. I don't know that I could even describe the look that she had on her face. You could see that she was just bursting at the seams. She was so excited, and so nervous, and happy and sad at the same time. You could tell that she was doing everything in her power to contain all of those emotions, and try to keep it together. Once everyone settled in, there was about 400 people in the mosque. Most of the attendees were Muslim, either from that mosque or Adnan's mosque. Which that was another interesting story. The event was originally supposed to be held at the mosque that Anon attended. But February 3rd, the day the hearing started, just happened to be the same day that President Obama decided to visit that particular mosque. So they had to move the event for the president. But in any case, we all settled in. One of the leaders from the mosque started with an opening prayer, and then Rabia took the stage. Here's Rabia talking about the jury deliberation at Anon's trial. Um, to deliberate, we all went to lunch. And we thought, you know, it might take a few days, a few weeks, it's a major case. There's, not a, there's no evidence other than this eyewitness whose testimony is really, really shady. Um, within like two hours, two to three hours, we were called back and they were found guilty. Uh, from the day Ivan was arrested, to the day he was, to the day he was convicted, to the day he was sentenced, to this day he has maintained his innocence. And this is very important to remember. You can hear the passion and the emotions in Rabia's voice. And listening to her speak really reminded me of what an amazing human being she is. I forget sometimes that Rabia is not actually related to Adnan. She was a close family friend, and her brother Saad and Adnan were very, very close. But at a time when so many people turned their backs on Adnan, when it seemed like there was this overwhelming evidence, or at least that's the way that it was presented to everyone, but Rabia never gave up on him. Not once. She literally carried that file box around in the back of her car for 15 years. She could never let it go, and she never has. There's been a lot of talk about who should be congratulated for not getting this post-conviction relief even opened up and even getting his case back into court. But really, when you think about it, there's no one else to take credit for this besides Rabia Chowdhury. She's the one that never let it go. She's the one that kept that paperwork with her at all times. She's the one that contacted Sarah Koenig. Without Rabia, there would be no serial. There would be no undisclosed. There would be no truth and justice. And there would be no PCR hearing. So as the evening went on, the next person to speak was Anand's little brother, Yusuf. I want to play some of Yusuf's speech for you guys so you can hear just how true and genuine and appreciative he is about all of this. Here's Yusuf at the event. I would also like to thank Saad uh, Chaudhary, who was the one friend of Adnan who would always visit him, always write him letters, always answer his phone calls. And when Adnan went away to prison, I thought, you know, I, I, I lost my brother and I was all alone. But little did I know, I had another brother who would take me to movies, would invite me to... And, and, and it, would, it would take me out, and that was sad, because he was always there for me. Um, there's no way we could thank them for everything they've done. And it, it, especially Sarah. We can't thank Sarah enough for reporting the story, but we also can't thank 
Colin Miller, Susan Simpson, and Bob Ruff for investigating what happened. Something that uh, gets lost in all of this is the victim, the person who lost their life, and that's Heyman Lee. She was born October 15, 1980, and she would have been 35 years old if she was alive today. Justice for Heyman Lee does not exist until we get the truth. After Yusuf spoke, Rabia surprised me by asking me to take the stage. This was another point where I was feeling really, really nervous. I do a lot of public speaking, and it doesn't typically make me nervous. But as many people, I've had preconceived notions of what the Muslim faith is and what goes on at a mosque. I just assumed that a mosque was a place where only a Muslim could speak. It's their house of worship. And the fact that they asked me to come up and speak on this stage just shows us how stereotypical we can be and how many assumptions we can make and how we form our opinions based on what we see on TV and not in reality. I was unprepared, but I was happy to be part of this event. Here's the raw audio from my short speech at the mosque. Um, something you guys don't know about me is that I'm uh, not exactly the tough guy that I sound like on the radio, so I'm probably going to cry. <laughs> this has been a really, really emotional experience for me. Um, just landing in Baltimore today, this has been, you know, I, I feel like Robbie and I are old friends, and we've been working together for almost a year now. Yeah, first time I met her was about 20 minutes ago. Um, but the the thing that's really amazing to me, I can go over the case with you guys, and you've all heard it so many times, but what's amazing to me, and this is the part that's going to make me cry, is this, and that, and that, and that. I had to grab my phone because your phone was crashing Periscope. Oh, sorry. There was too many people. And so I turned my phone on, and my phone was crashing Periscope because there were too many people. So Michael turned on his phone. There's people from all around the world supporting this cause. And and I, I want to thank the, uh, forgive me if I don't use the correct terminology, but the Muslim community for welcoming us all uh, into your facility. And that, that's kind of the part that's so amazing to me is, like Yusuf said, there, there is support from all over the world. And it's all races, all religions, all the things that divide our country and our world. Inan Syed's case has brought all these people together for one cause. I look in this room, and I look on those phones, and I see nothing but love. And people that are fighting for justice, and people that are fighting for what is right, no matter what walk of life you come from, no matter what community you come from, no matter what religion you come from, we've all come together and fighting for the same cause. And I hope this continues after we get a non-Sayed out of prison. And I believe that that is going to happen. After I was done giving my speech, Michael A. Wood got a surprise too when Robbie asked him to come up and speak. And speaking of Michael, he's another person that should be named in all of this. 
Michael, like me, had no connection to this case other than the fact that he used to be a Baltimore cop. But Michael's a guy who believes in justice. He believes in righting wrongs and correcting our criminal justice system. And so not only did he take the time to drive down from Pennsylvania to attend this event, Michael also drove down to the courthouse almost every day, some of those days just to hang out with Rabia, because she couldn't be in the courtroom, which I'll explain later why that happened. So Michael's been a huge supporter, and he's been a great help, and just a great guy to lean on. So here's Michael A. Wood's speech at the community event. Thank you, one thing I'll say real quick is that everybody being here and hearing the story helps fight with the denial, and I think that's the biggest issue we're dealing with right now, is that a lot of people don't realize how quickly this can affect your life, and we think that as long as it's not affecting us, it doesn't matter. But now that Sarah and Rabia brought it not to us, we were able to personify that and bring it to something that was real. And once it's real, we see how this, this system treats everyone. And if we don't stand up and we don't fight that system now, it's going to be the person next to us that has to stand up and has to have Rabia save them. So whether you're following me or you're following Rabia, or you just keep up on this issue because it's obviously in the forefront. Now's our time to capture that and fix the system so we don't have more people suffering like they're not dead. Thank you. So I'm going to concede that Michael A. Wood is better at impromptu speeches than I am. He did a great job, and just everybody in that event was amazing, and it was just such an awesome experience. Even afterwards, for probably an hour, everyone got together and helped put things away, and we all got to know each other. I got to meet a lot of fans while I was there. And then after we left, Robbie asked me to go out to dinner with her and her family. She wanted to take me out to an authentic Pakistani meal. I didn't know what to expect, but I was up for anything. So they took me to this little Pakistani restaurant. And it was right across the street from the Woodlawn Public Library. I don't know if I would use the word incredible or eerie to describe the feeling of walking out out of that street and seeing how the library really is right there next to the school. This is a place that I've been talking to you all about for nearly a year now. And it was incredible to be standing there and actually looking at that place. But we went inside and Robbie wanted me to get the full Pakistani experience. So I'm pretty sure that she ordered every single thing off of the menu. We had a big group, so there was food spread out from one end of the table to the other. I had no idea what I was eating. Robbie broke it all down for me while we were there. What you do we got it. here? You did say we are, we are carnivores. What we have here, so this is a minced chicken kebab, and this is a proprietor of the restaurant. You can say hi to the whole world. Hello. Hello. Uh, this is like our favorite joint, Medina kebab, and we're right across from Woodlawn High School, ironically. So this is a minced chicken kebab. It's cold, cooked over a grill, so it's minced chicken mixed with lots of spices. Yes, jai for everybody. Uh, no, not for him, and not for him. This is everybody else. Tandoori chicken. So it's grilled tandoori chicken. Tandoori chicken. Chicken tikka, is what it's called. But it's basically boneless piece of chicken that's marinated in lots of spices and then grilled on skewers in a, like a clay oven type of situation. This is something called nihari. It took about 20 minutes for Rabia to describe all of the food on the table. But you get the idea. It was just like having a big family dinner. We all had fun. We ate way too much food. We were there for a couple of hours just talking and catching up. Once dinner was over, we all split up and Saad and I went back to his place for the night. Once we got there, we were both really keyed up and anxious about the hearing the next morning. We ended up staying up way too late sitting up and talking. And finally, about 1 o'clock in the morning, we went to bed. The next morning, we were up bright and early, and we headed to downtown Baltimore for the hearing. It was my birthday, so Saad surprised me with a nice cup of 7-Eleven coffee when we got there. And coincidentally, 
February 3rd, the first day of the hearing, was also Anand's attorney, Justin Brown's birthday. So before the hearing, Justin and I exchanged birthday high fives before we walked into the courtroom. At this point, all the fun and games were over. This was it. This was the moment that we've all been working for for so long. Most of us for over a year. And for Robbie, this had been a 17-year fight to get us into this courtroom. And we were finally there. So we walked in. We were waiting for Anand to walk into the courtroom. And right from the start, the state started playing games. The state's attorney presenting the case for them was a guy named Thiru Vignaraja. And I most likely pronounced that incorrectly. As is typical in these types of proceedings, both lawyers agreed that any witnesses that were going to be testifying should be sequestered. And for those of you that aren't familiar with court cases like this, the idea is that if someone's going to testify, then they shouldn't hear other testimony or the rest of the case before they get to. So they have to leave the courtroom until it's their turn to testify. This is a normal thing. It's done all the time. But the abnormal thing was that Thero requested that Rabia Chowdhury be sequestered. And of course, this was devastating to Rabia. And it made no sense. Robbie was not going to testify. At one point, she was on the witness list for the defense. Justin Brown had put her on there, but he told the judge that he was not going to be calling her, so she should have been able to stay in the room. But Thero made the argument that he may want to call her, and for that reason, she needed to be sequestered. This was a dick move, and it made no sense. There was no way in hell that Thero was going to call Robbie to the stand. He had never spoken with her. He had no idea what she was going to say. She was not on his witness list. The idea of him calling her was preposterous. But he was able to convince the judge that he may want to at some point. So Robbie was sequestered. She had to leave the courtroom and she couldn't be in there for the entire proceeding. Also, through the duration of the hearing, we weren't allowed to give her details of what was going on inside. It's part of being sequestered. It was nothing more than a power play on the state's part, and poor Robbie had to walk out before Adnan even came into the room. After Robbie and all the other witnesses left, Adnan finally walked in. Seeing Adnan walk into that room, in his jumpsuit, in shackles, was like a gut punch for me. It felt really similar to the point that Michael A. Wood made in his speech. Adnan personified this issue to all of us, and seeing him walk in there, seeing that real person walk into that courtroom, and seeing him as a 34-year-old man, and knowing that he was put in there when he was just a child, that he was locked up at 17 years old, was really getting to me right from the start. And I wasn't the only one. I was sitting right next to Saad, and when I turned to look at him, his eyes were welling up with tears. It was hard on everyone, especially the family, to see Adnan walk in. And I didn't ask, but I don't think they were tears of sadness. Or maybe it was partially sadness but mixed in with pride and joy and all of these things all culminated into that one moment where it was hard to see Adnan in those shackles, but we also knew in the back of our head, this could be it. This could be our chance to finally get Adnan home. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So the hearing got underway. There were opening statements from both the defense and the prosecution. And Justin got to call his first witness, Paul Dante. This is the periscope that I put out right after the first morning break on day one. Justin Brown had a really good opening argument. The state had theirs. And we've had one witness, um, uh, a guy named Paul Dante, who knew Gutierrez and represented her during her disembarment. And he's in the middle of testifying now. Mr. Dante's testimony was basically just walking through the timeline of the fall and demise of Christina Gutierrez. He talked about how powerful of an attorney she was back in the 80s and how he personally witnessed her decline through the 90s, leading up to her disbarment and then later her death. After Mr. Dante, Justin called Bill Keneshwa. Bill was another attorney who had worked with Christina Gutierrez, again, all the way back from her heyday through her death. He talked specifically about how things were at the end. He said around 1999 and later, Gutierrez would dump cases on him and the other partners at the law firm at the last minute. He said sometimes she would give him a case where there was a brief due on Monday morning as she was leaving on Friday afternoon. She was just completely overwhelmed. She wasn't doing her job and she wasn't keeping up with her cases. He also said that she was having a lot of money problems, that there was even at least one time where they didn't get paid when they were supposed to. Bill turned out to be a great witness for Adnan. He made it clear that he did not want to be there. He did not want to talk bad about Christina Gutierrez. He was there because he was subpoenaed, and he said on the record that he wouldn't have come if he hadn't been subpoenaed. Knowing this, it seemed like Justin treaded lightly with him. He didn't press the issues. He just asked the questions that needed to be asked. His only purpose for testifying was to lay a foundation for the judge to see that Gutierrez's skill level and effectiveness was declining and in fact had already declined by 1999 when she was representing Anon. And that was it. The direct examination didn't take very long. Justin asked the questions that he needed to ask, and he sat down. Theo, on the other hand, had something different in mind in Cross. And this was a constant theme throughout this hearing. The reason the hearing had to be extended for two more days had a lot to do with the fact that Theo was constantly violating the rules of court. He was doing things that were not allowed. Justin was constantly objecting. And the strange thing was that the judge was overruling all of these objections. So with Keneshwa on the stand, Thiru started questioning out of the scope from what he had been asked in direct. And again, Justin kept objecting to this. Cross-examination for a witness in that situation can only be relevant to what was covered in direct. So Thiru takes a gamble and questions him out of scope. This is my take on Periscope after the cross-examination. Okay, we're on our lunch break from day one. Uh, we got through the first two witnesses, and the second one was, uh, in my opinion, rock solid. Um, it was someone that was subpoenaed, a guy named Kenneth Schwa, I think was his name, and he worked with Christina Gutierrez, and um, the prosecution really tried to back him into making an excuse for not calling Asia as an alibi witness. He was really just there on the defense side as a... Um, character witness to kind of talk about the decline of Gutierrez, but the prosecution tried to use him to 
as a defense attorney that worked with Gutierrez to say that it could be a strategy not to call an alibi witness, um, you know, for example, and they just came right on set at well, Anand says he's at the school, Asia says he's at the library, now we all know that those two are basically the same thing, but he said in that case, maybe is that a strategy or is that an excuse not to call her, and almost surprisingly, um, the witness, Kenneth Wall, said, no, absolutely not. In fact, she has a duty by law to investigate that alibi witness. It is not a strategy. You never want to lock yourself in before court. Um, I'm going to say as the prosecutor was kind of throwing his pen down on the ground and flipping some papers around, he was clearly very frustrated with the way that um, the witness was tes testifying. Like I said, that really wasn't the intention of him being there on the defense side. So the prosecution took a huge risk by trying to get him on the record saying that there's a reason why he may not have, um, why Gutierrez might not have called Asia, and he just stomped that into the ground. So it was really good. Rabia is still not in the... After recording that periscope, we really quickly had some lunch and headed back into the courtroom. Well, most of us headed back in the courtroom. Rabia headed back to the free Adnan headquarters. Dunkin' Donuts. After the lunch break, we finally got to hear from Asia McLean. And during a quick mid-afternoon break, Susan Simpson and I stepped out to update everyone on how that was going. Asia was good. She was good. She Asia's, was, uh, uh, I'll let Susan explain it better than me. No, she was solid. She was nervous as hell, you could tell. Um, she, um... I mean, you could tell that she was, I mean, she, she, she was coached, she was coached badly, like, she was just trying to talk. By Yurik, you're talking about. But no, by anyone. Like, okay, she was yeah. clearly answering, like, authentically, like, didn't really know which, how to do, like, the rules of court, and just trying to be, I mean, straightforward, sincere. Um, I mean, I'm sure the state's going to come back and say, like, she's a liar, but if so... Give her goddamn Oscar, because she was good. Yeah, she's very genuine and very sweet, and um, she really was able to put the um, easily the the weather issue that some people had to bed. Um, no, it's going this way. <laughs> it's actually Asia right there. Um, she explained how she had went back to her boyfriend's house and. Um, he did eventually take her home that she had convinced her mom that she she stayed longer because the weather was... Yes? You cannot do that inside. Oh, it's got to be outside? Oh, sorry. So that was the county sheriff's deputy gently reminding me that I'm not allowed to record inside of the courthouse. Now, in my defense, I honestly did forget that I couldn't record inside. There were parts of the courthouse where we could use our phones, but there was not supposed to be any recording of any type inside of the courtroom. But after that, we went back in and Asia finished her testimony, and she was amazing. She was real, she was genuine, she was honest, and that's what Susan was trying to get across in that audio. She was saying that if she was coached, she was coached badly. And what she meant by that was that it's obvious that she wasn't trained and coached on exactly what to say while she was in there. She was giving her real honest responses. She wasn't comfortable in the courtroom. She was just... Real. That's the only word I could use to describe her. Asia was real. So at the end of day one, Susan and I got together and recorded a periscope to tell you all about how things went at the end of the day. You all right? Yeah, I'm good. Yeah. And we're, we're hanging out with Robbie is still here and husband, Saad, uh, Yusuf. Seema is still here videoing us, videoing yeah, her. The dual periscoping. Yeah. Um, and so we're just going to kind of recap. I'm going to let Susan talk about first her thoughts on how the second half of... Because Asia's... I'm not going to get us both in there. Sorry, I don't mean to get fresh with you. I am... Uh, I had thoughts. I have said them a My lot. My thoughts. 
<laughs> it's been a long day. You, can you guys see the 100 pages of notes you took during the trial? I'm, I'm good. So we got the record. It's not quite a transcript, but it, it, it'll get us most of the way there. Okay. So, so what, but then I have to like go through and like translate my own gibberish. Like, so what are your thoughts on the cross-examination of Asia? Um, you know, I, it's, I want to go back and see if they're going for I think they are, which... Oh, we'll see. I'm excited to see where they're going with it. I think they're gonna. Um, oh, what's up? Wait, should I? I'm gonna break it. There we go. Okay, I'm gonna do this. Why she messes with that? I think it's going. I, I think it's going well. Um, Asia is extremely personal. She comes off as very, very genuine. I think she's doing a really good job. Um, the the prosecution is beating her up a little bit in cross examination. I mean, attempting to beat her up a little bit. I think she's. She's holding her own pretty good, but he's he's doing a good job of trying to fluster her about days and times. I think he's trying to get her to say, I can't remember yeah. as many times as possible. I was saying earlier, I thought earlier in the day he was really going for an Asia is a scheming liar defense. Yeah. And I think after seeing her testify, he's like, well, that's not going to work. We're going to go with the Asia's wrong defense. Right. Because he did seem, so far, he really hasn't hit the whole... She like intentionally did all this to try and like give an alibi to a friend thing, and he was definitely sounding that note with the other witnesses. He yeah. was questioning them like, if you found out your witness was. But chronologically, yeah. he has a long more, a lot more to go. Yeah, he's he's really he's only on. He's still at the incident. For, yeah, um, and, he is, and he's just picking he is, apart he, details that are irrelevant, yeah. and it's cross. So, is it, are there's a rule they can, they can get away with more in cross than with indirect? Because oh, Justin's can, objecting a lot, and he's just okay, getting overruled. You can, you can, like, you can definitely. There's things you can do in cross you can't do in direct. Um, but he, the, the ask and answer is pretty basic, and usually they're more strict with that. So I kind of think it's a good sign to the extent you can read it one way or the other. Because um, um, if the judge was like, if you, if the judge is like has a way he wants to lean, oftentimes they'll go the other way in court to try and see, like, they're favoring the other side. They don't want to seem biased. It's hard to tell. Oh, they don't I want mean, to see like, it. That's like reading tea leaves. I mean, that's kind of like litigator yeah. superstition. Right. But seeing a judge that overruled really valid 101 level objections makes like you Like that, think, too. Overruled. You're like, well, they don't, they don't want to be accused of bias later. That's the, Okay, that's, so that, that... That is definitely just me. So it's reading tea leaves, yeah. but it's kind of... If they're kind of leaning a certain way, they yeah. don't want to have people say that they didn't allow. And that. especially with the ask and answer, you can't like you, you don't ask a witness the same question five times and have her like be like, "Could you speculate on an answer?" I know you don't know, but do you want to pretend to know? Something? Yeah, and that's that's kind of how it was going. And at one point, Justin <laughs> said, "I object." He's literally asked and answered this seven times, and they overruled it and let him keep going. But yeah, so like, but uh, I mean. The reason you don't do ask and answer is because witnesses will trip themselves up. Like, you give them right. more what they need. Um, but I think the judge is obviously aware of that. So to the mm -hmm. extent that she did start saying, well, if we speculate here, something could happen, I don't think he'll hold that against her because he knows damn well that there was asked and answered. Well, asked and she's answered. being so honest, too. Like, she just keeps saying, I do not remember... I don't want to speculate. Do you want me to speculate? And I then I'll ask her again. For you. And he's kind of like, yes, Justin's like, no. Yeah. <laughs> I do not want her to speculate. Yeah. Like, oh. Sorry. So I was going to say, right, take a pause. Yeah. Um, like, I need to like, number my, the, have an index for my notes. Are you looking for something for this? or? Yeah, I was going to say, like, the chemistry. I need, I need to make an index for tomorrow. I'll do that. Um, but Kanisher had some great, great quotes. Um, the way he was very. Kanisher was the second. Uh, witness this morning that was talking about 
uh, his relationship with Gutierrez. Yeah, so like he said at one point, um, uh, Deere's trying to get him to say, oh, I'd rule out a witness if I was, you know, had doubts about it. And he's like, you never really know until the state puts its case on what's going to happen. Um, we're constantly deferring judgment on the facts and like what's before us. Um, Photo bombing time. <laughs> That's Yusuf. That's what we want to do as defense attorneys. We want to defer judgment and we want to not make a decision until we have to because we never know what the states would come out with. Like they might be saying before trial, oh, we're going to say A. We're going we're gonna to say A. And they get to trial and they're saying B. And if you ruled out a witness that could defend you on B because you believe what the state was telling you, right. well, you're in trouble. Um, I was really happy so, when he brought up the yeah. fact that just because your client, because they tried to make the point that you all, you know, Anon said school and she said library, and he did a, I thought, a great job of making the point that, look, just because your client said something doesn't mean you don't investigate other angles because clients are wrong too sometimes. Yeah, so he was saying um, you don't want to like make judgment too early. You know with the police, and my notes say Popo's mistake is tunnel vision, arrow, so defendants try to avoid that. The police get to like, side on a case early and focus on that and then start going towards the wrong answer. Our job is to keep all options open until we know what's going on. Right. I loved it when he, and I was surprised he did it, when he... He just came right on set and said, and I think that's what your notes are about. He said, you know, the police department makes this mistake a lot of times and almost like looked right over towards Anon, I felt like it said, where they will focus in on one person or one theory way too early and they get blinders on it and it leads to these mistakes. Yeah. When's the time to make a decision about an alibi? Close the state's case. Yeah. yeah they were months ahead of time. They were trying to get him to say that... They could set. They're, they're trying to make the strategy argument, and he blew it away. And so what's interesting though is because he really was. I I felt like you know it's been a long day, but I felt very strongly that he was trying to do this whole age lying thing, mm -hmm. and therefore it's okay for the attorney not to contact her um, because she was lying. And he, if he really does just back away from that full stop, he's left to saying it's okay for an attorney not to contact the witness because they're assuming that she's wrong. No, right? No, 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 it's not okay. So after doing all of our interviews and all of our periscopes, Saad, Susan, and I went out to dinner. Saad knew about this great barbecue place he wanted us to check out. So we had dinner. We talked about the case some more. Susan and I may or may not have had a couple of cold beers with dinner. Then we parted ways, and Saad and I went back to his place, and it was another long night. We were even more keyed up and nervous than we were the night before. One thing that we didn't mention in the Periscope was that in the cross-examination, Asia mentioned something about the fact that she played basketball her senior year. Well, this immediately struck me as a big problem because we know that the Woodlawn girls basketball team had a basketball game on January 13th. You remember Stephanie was playing in that game that day. So if Asia was on the basketball team and she had a basketball game that night and she doesn't remember the basketball game, but she remembers all these other details, it would definitely attack the credibility of her testimony. So again, after one o'clock in the morning, Saad and I went to our rooms and we went to bed. The next morning, we were still worried about the basketball situation. We are getting ready to go into the courthouse on day two. Uh, Saad and I, say hi, Saad. Hello. <laughs> Saad and I just got downtown. We're getting ready to walk into the courthouse. So this morning, the first thing, order of business is going to be Asia McLean's uh, second half of her testimony. The uh, prosecution is going to continue their cross-examination of her, and then there'll be the rebuttal. Um, and then I don't know if they're going to call Yurik. Uh, the state has Yurik on their witness list, so he may be called in to refute um, Asia's testimony. I'm not sure how exactly that's going, that's going to go. It should be a very interesting morning. There's um, some things with um, 
With Asia's testimony, the state was trying to pull out of her the idea that she might have played basketball, which we know there was a basketball game that night. Um, and then they kind of stopped abruptly in the middle of it yesterday. So we don't know what's going to go on today. It's I, I'm, We're anxious and nervous about it to see how it goes. And then we'll get into the cell phone stuff. So as soon as we have a break. Well, as it turned out, we were worried for nothing. Within a few minutes of getting started, both sides acknowledged that Asia McLean did not play basketball her senior year. She had simply misspoke the day before. She played basketball during her junior year. Although I'm sure Thero spent a lot of time the night before trying to prove that she played basketball. But in the end, it was obvious that she hadn't. So as Thero picked up his cross-examination, the second day he was mostly attacking the second letter that Asia McLean wrote. So remember, she first wrote the letter to Adnan on March 1st, the day after he was arrested, telling him that she had seen him in the library that day. And then she sent a second letter to him the very next day on March 2nd. So Thier's strategy seemed to be to attack that second letter and try to prove that the letter had not actually been written on March 2nd, but rather that it had been written weeks later. And not only that it had been written weeks later, but that Adnan had contacted Asia through a friend to get her to write that letter. It almost seemed like Thier was getting his defense from Reddit. He was pointing out details in the letter that he says there was no way that Asia could have known on March 2nd, that none of these things were public knowledge yet. The surprising part was, and this seemed to be consistent throughout the entire hearing, Thier left a lot of angles open, he planted a lot of seeds, but he never really landed any punches. But as we left to go on our lunch break, I was definitely concerned about all the things that Thier had brought up. All those details that there was no way that Asia could have known on March 2nd. Asia's cross, it's, I'm concerned um, about what's going to happen next. She did very well. She held up very well. Uh, but Thero, the prosecutor, I think, he planted a lot of seeds. He's trying to attack the second letter is, is what I believe his strategy is. So he's really trying to, he's, he's questioning her a lot about how she got the information so quickly that was in that letter. He's implying that that letter actually wasn't written on March 2nd, that it was actually written weeks later, and uh, implying that uh, the information came from... (laughs) Michael Wood forgot his keys in the uh, lunch place where we were just at, so I grabbed them for him. Um, So anyway, he's, he's trying to say that somebody... Somebody had contacted. Yeah. Thank you. Everybody say hi to the world, Mike. Hi, world. <laughs> Irresponsible okay. with his keys. All right, man. So he's trying to say, you, you guys have probably heard some of the Reddit rumors and stuff. That the, there was a note in Juwan's police interview that people believe that says, or that indicates that Adnan had somehow gotten a letter, uh, word to Asia, and told her to write that letter. Uh, and the theory has always been that that was referring to the bail letters. Asia on the stand denies that happened. She held strong that the letter that she wrote was indeed written on March 2nd, the second letter, and that she had never had any contact from Adnan. What concerns me is the way that Thiru ended his cross-examination. He cut it off and he, and he drew it to an end uh, without landing any punches. It's like he planted all these seeds he got her on the record saying that it happened the way she says it happened, uh, and then he just rested. But it, to me, he seemed very confident, uh, and he ended at a weird place. So I suspect that we will have another witness uh, being called by the prosecution that is somehow going to corroborate or attempt to corroborate 
what he said. So personally, I'm expecting to see either Juwan or Justin, who was Asia's ex-boyfriend, uh, be called in to testify uh, once uh, Anand's team is done with rebuttal. So could be could go bad, could go well. I don't know for sure, but we will see when they get back. And then um, after that, we'll get into the cell phone evidence. So keep in mind, too, that the cell phone evidence and the Asia situation are two independent issues uh, that are working towards getting a new trial. So regardless of how Asia's um, testimony goes, uh, we still have the cell phone issues to deal with, and those are independent of whatever happens with Asia. So uh, keep your fingers crossed. Some of the things that Thera was citing were details like Hay being buried in the shallow grave. And she had written something that was almost like a joke where she said that central booking probably isn't a good place to make friends. There were several little details like this, and Thera just hammered away at them. How could you possibly know that he was in central booking? How could you possibly know that she was buried in a shallow grave? So on and so forth. And that's what had me nervous, because I wasn't sure how she could have known those things already on March 2nd. But then Justin got up for redirect, and he was concise, and he was very effective. It wasn't even difficult to shoot this theory down. All he had to do was put an article from the Baltimore Sun up on the overhead. The article was published on March 1st, the day after Anon was arrested. And he highlighted every single point that Thero had made on the article. So he pointed out that Thero didn't know how she could possibly know that Hay was buried in a shallow grave. And then he highlighted the part of the newspaper article that says she was buried in a shallow grave. He did this for every single point that Thero had tried to make. It even said in the article that Anon was in central booking. Justin has an incredible way of getting his point across. As he highlighted the central booking line from the Baltimore Sun article, he asked Asia, kind of flamboyantly, how could you possibly know that Adnan was in central booking? Wherever could you possibly have gotten that information? The courtroom laughed. Asia chuckled a little bit and said, probably from that article right there. At this point, Thera was kind of slumped down in his chair. He tossed his pen onto his desk. He had most definitely been bested by Justin Brown. And this wouldn't be the last time. So all in all, Asia was amazing. Her testimony was rock solid. Like I said before, she was very real. She got extremely emotional at times, especially when Thera was hammering her about Hay and the murder itself. And when all was said and done with, Asia McLean walked off that stand with her head held high, and deservingly so. She was a great witness. As she said herself on the stand, she had no dog in this fight. She wasn't close with Anon. She wasn't close with Hay. Her only desire was just to make sure that the truth was out there. She didn't know if her testimony would help or hurt Adnan, but she had information and she wanted it out there, and that was it. Asia McLean was absolutely a win for the defense. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just gonna circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Next up, Justin Brown called up a cell phone expert. Under direct examination, he clearly and concisely stated that the fax cover sheet absolutely did apply to Exhibit 31 at trial. That was the subscriber activity report that Abe Boronowitz testified about. There really wasn't much to the testimony. He talked about his resume and how long he'd worked on cell phone data. He explained that he would never attempt to read a document like that subscriber activity report without a key, which was the term he used to describe the fax cover sheet. He said, with that type of document, you always get a key that tells you how to read the document. That was really it. That was his only purpose to be on the stand. Remember, the standard that we have to prove in order for the cell phone evidence to matter is that it was a Brady violation for Kevin Urick to not disclose the fax cover sheet, both to the defense as well as to the state cell phone expert, Abel Ronowitz. And as most of you probably know, Abel Ronowitz actually submitted an affidavit this fall saying that he didn't realize the fax cover sheet existed, it was never shown to him, and that his testimony would have been different if he had seen that fax cover sheet. So the defense's cell phone expert did exactly what he needed to do and just clearly explain that you need that fax cover sheet with the key on it in order to be able to read that document. That was it. So when Thero got up for cross-examination, once again he went way out of scope. He kept asking a lot of questions that were way beyond the expert's direct testimony. Again, Justin kept objecting, and again, the judge kept overruling. Thero kept asking him if he could explain why incoming calls might be unreliable, what that means, and was just hammering and hammering away at this witness. And the witness was holding his own. He just kept saying, that is not what my purpose was. It was not my job to look up how the AT&T systems worked back in 1999. My job was simply to determine if that key that came with that fax cover sheet was relevant to the document they sent. But Thero kept going on and on and on and on and on. Then towards the end of the cross-examination, Thero started to get noticeably pissed off. He was not getting the responses that he wanted to get out of this expert. Here's my take with Susan Simpson after day two. It's not about you can do it. It's about you so I'm going to do the end of the day two periscope, and I'm going to walk away from Robbie and leave her in the Robbie corner. Can know nothing. She's not allowed to know anything. Let's go to our office. Our office over here. <laughs> Yeah, no, we're now in the uh, Bob and Susan office. Yeah. Because <laughs> Robbie was clustered, and technically we cannot tell her what happened today. What do you think of day two? It was pretty good. Um, it was um, it was pretty good. The cell phone stuff was interesting. I'm very curious to see what this expert's going to come back with tomorrow. The the state's expert? Yes, yeah. yeah, so we wrapped up. I'm trying, last time I talked, we were waiting for the thing for the cross of Asia. Um, and actually, Justin and Redirect did a fantastic job. I think we're like, pretty, you think we're pretty solid with I Asia? Mean, Justin did what he needed to do. He's like, you know what? You just heard a lot of fucking bullshit. I'm going to like point out some of the obvious ones. Like, just, like, look, there's an answer to everything you just said. It's a really obvious and boring answer. 
And he didn't even put shit in the record. Like, he didn't introduce any of his evidence. So, are you going to rely on his hypothetical questions? Yeah, and, like, the or, big thing was he was, he said, like, in this letter you knew all this information and how could you have known it? And, and he actually made it kind of a compelling, sounded compelling <laughs> argument. Justin stood up in two minutes, like, here, here's a newspaper article that was published on March 1st. He's like, isn't it a coincidence that your letter says the same thing as the search affidavit? Yeah. Um, isn't it a coincidence that your search affidavit, which you don't want to, like, give information to the defense you right. haven't already, only uses public information? Right. Yeah, it's everything. So, like, one of my favorite Justin moment of the day was... There are a lot of Justin. Yeah, like, yeah, he was on fire. Justin was like... There was a, a part in her letter where she said, um, it must not be a good place to make friends in central booking or something like that. And he was like, how could you possibly know that term, central booking? So Justin brings up the newspaper article where it says he's in central booking. And he, he stands up and he's like, yeah, how could you possibly know? Where could you ever have come up with the central booking term? So that was really good. My and favorite Justin moment was when... And this is the first time I've well, so like the first day, first morning part, first day, first feels like forever ago. Yeah. Um, Asia's getting lots of briefing questions, like the exact questions, oh, yeah. again and again. And like this is like literally the most basic level of objections. You cannot do that. Right. And the judge was like, I'll allow it. It's like the judge that allows things. Yeah, some questions like 10, 15 yeah, times. I'll allow it. Um, and uh, so. When he did redirect for Asia, he gets up there and he's like, do you remember this morning when you asked the same question over and over again? And she's like, yes. It's like, and I was sitting here objecting over and over again? And the judge was there going, well, I probably shouldn't say that. Yeah, it was, he had the whole courtroom rolling. So, the judge, I saw the judge, he was like, he was smiling. I don't think he was like laughing at it, but he was like, I'm not thrilled about this, but... I think he acknowledged it was a good point. Yeah, and it was funny. I, th- it was. I thought it was funny it was anyway. Funny. So the cell phone expert today, he did great. It's a, it's a lot of boring details that Susan finds interesting. It was no one else as <laughs> I was. I was like... I was. He, he killed it. And there was, there was a lot of... The, the best thing I could tell you from my perspective at the end, Thero was noticeably pissed to the point where he was like kind of lashing out at the expert, which is a good thing that he's that that he's that. Oh yeah, off. that was over the top. Like that was really really unprofessional. Um, I mean, I can't imagine. Like, no, I don't know what he could possibly have. That like what would warrant that outburst. Yeah, because nothing. You know, I think like, he was just pissed. I mean, Justin isn't putting all his cards on the table because he doesn't have to yet. So like, right. Theru, so like I've already told everyone else, but tell like the Twitter or the Peter's the world. Um, at the end, Justin, uh, sorry, Theru was like, "The expert, give me tomorrow." Well, if you are, do you want to know why the fax cover sheet says incoming calls aren't reliable? Um, but are a really snotty voice, like a super loud, like loud, snotty. aggressive, yeah, pointing like, in his face. Like a real expert will tell you tomorrow. Yeah, why show up tomorrow and yeah, you'll find show up out. Show up tomorrow and you'll find out. This little aggressive outburst by Thiru would prove to blow up in his face the next day. There were a lot of embarrassing moments for Thiru throughout this hearing, but I have to believe that this was the worst one. So what he had done was, towards the end of the testimony, when he was getting pissed off because he wasn't getting the answers that he wanted out of our expert, he aggressively stepped towards the expert, pointed fingers at him, and was yelling, if you want to really know what's going on with these cell phone records, why don't you come tomorrow and hear our expert and have them actually explain it to you? I mean, just being a complete asshole, arrogant, and just over the top. And I have a feeling he regrets doing that now. Really aggressive. And it was strange, too, because, like, it had been very... He was asking a question, and his answer did not go well. Right. Yeah, like, he got an answer he did not like from um, this 
defense expert. And that was a lot of first happened. So, so I guess tomorrow we'll be here and we're going to learn something from the FBI agent. Yeah, the special agent. About cell phone records. Yeah. I think for now we're looking good. Unfortunately, unless I manage to change a flight, I will not be here. I'm leaving early in the Just morning like, tomorrow. Just get a new flight. Well, I, my issue is my children. So, um, uh, honey, if you're listening, uh, I need to talk to you about tomorrow. And I love you. And, and mom and dad, if you're listening, uh, you may also maybe on the call list. So we'll talk to you guys all later. See ya. So Becky and my parents did step up to help me out. I made a quick call first to Becky and asked if she was okay with me staying longer to catch the third day of the hearing. She was very supportive and she was definitely willing to put up with me not being home for one more day so that I could be there. But she had other obligations with my two stepchildren, and she could not get down to pick up my kids. Well, with me being on the phone constantly in Periscope, my dad couldn't get through to me, and I got a notification on Twitter from my dad. And this is just another amazing thing about this experience, as far as so many people getting involved and so many people rooting for this cause that were never involved in it before. My dad and my mother both joined Twitter and Periscope just so they could keep up with what was going on. And before I could even get on the phone, I got a tweet from my dad. His tweet read, We've got this end. Get that man out. Even just repeating that now sends shivers down my spine. My dad has always been good at one-liners. But this one just hit home for me about how important this cause is. The people that have never even been to Baltimore and didn't know who Adnan Syed was before Serial. Everyone, in every way they can, is dropping what they're doing to give any kind of support they can give. And we can definitely add my parents to that list. So after I got on the computer and I got my flight changed around, we all went out to celebrate a successful day over dinner. And speaking of successful day, I don't know if you're noticing kind of the change in tone between me and Susan as these days are going on. I didn't so much notice it at the time, but listening back to these periscopes now, you can hear us getting more and more and more confident as the hearing moves along. So a huge group of us went out to a nice big dinner we all had some great food and a lot of laughs. And that night, Susan, Saad, myself, and a few other family friends spent the rest of the evenings hanging out and talking the night away. Susan and I convinced everyone to take us to a really cool brewery. It was called the Firehouse. And it was an old turn-of-the-century fire station that had been converted into a brewery. It was a great night, and again, at the end of the night, we all parted company. Saad and I went back to his place. And I think for the first time, we actually got a really good night's sleep. We were starting to feel comfortable about how things were going. We were starting to feel like we might actually win this thing. So day three started off with Justin calling. Okay, real quick, we're on our mid-morning break. I just wanted to real quick touch base. Uh, we had a Justin called uh, private investigator this morning whose job was to contact everybody on the alibi witness list to see if they'd ever been contacted by the defense. He testified that he was able to get a hold of 41 out of the 86 out of those four had been contacted by the defense and zero of those people had been talked to about being an alibi witness and none were called at trial. Uh, Thero's up to his same bullshit. He's, he's playing all kinds of games. He's, I, I really think he's just purposely dragging his feet and trying to delay things. He's asking questions that are completely out of the scope. It's constant objections and bench conferences. And then after the bench conferences, he'll come right back out and do exactly what the judge told him not to do. Um, so he's there was a mess uh, Justin's team definitely killed that when the expert was great the only thing he was testifying to is that everyone he was able to get a hold of was not contacted by Gutierrez's teams uh, as an alibi witness after the break Justin called librarian Michelle Hamuel 
You guys might remember Michelle. She was the librarian that Sarah Koenig spoke to on Serial, and she was awesome at this hearing. Rather than me explain it to you, let me just play you this video of me and Saad discussing it after the break. Okay, so we took an early lunch. We have a short lunch break today, so I don't have a whole lot of time. Uh, but I want to let you guys know that the witness that Justin called was, was Michelle Hamuel. Michelle was Hamuel, yeah. So Michelle Hamuel was one of the librarians from the Woodlawn Public Library in 1999. She's the one that was interviewed on Serial. So one thing that was really neat was to see someone that was on the witness stand, because she was on Serial, they actually read from the Serial transcripts, uh, the prosecutor did, but she was incredible. She was the strongest witness, I think, that we've seen yet. I mean... Um. I think so. I think she's definitely um, set a tone saying that, that there was definitely cameras there, without a doubt, and you could have been able to be contacted. Right. The, the attention why Justin called her was to establish the fact that there were cameras in the library because Asia had said that she called the library and asked about cameras. She said that she had called and asked about cameras and said there were. So they were establishing that, and they were also establishing the fact. So that, so. the secret witness that the state was talking about earlier has been let out is a guy named Steve who was a security guard in January of 99. So the only attention that Justin's team had with her was to establish that there's so many people in and out of that library on a daily basis, there's no possible way six weeks later you could remember who was or wasn't there. Because Steve is probably going to try and testify that that he can remember that not say it wasn't there or something like that yeah. along those lines. So Thiru took another gamble that blew up in his fucking face. <laughs> he he started questioning her about and cross about the security guards and asked if she remembered any of them and she happened to say well I do remember a guy named Steve and then they he further started questioning her about the security guards and what her role was and she had the whole courtroom in stitches she said she said that the security guards were useless that the students referred to them as 2.5 because uh cops are 5-0 and they're only half cops they had no guns they had no anything like that and she referred to them all as useless goofballs um, at one point, Steve was being referred to as useless Steve, that he was one of the more goofy ones that didn't interact with the kids and didn't really do anything. He was more of a deterrent rather than any kind of security force. Right. So, Thiru, by taking that gamble, now our witness unknowingly, unwittingly, completely destroyed the credibility of their witness. Uh, if I, My assumption would be they won't even call him now. It would be a dumb move for them to call yeah, Steve at this like, point. Uh, useless Steve. It seemed like Steve was, or Thiru was trying to set up a foundation to say how important this guy Steve is during that time, and she completely ruined that. She was like, he was useless. He didn't interact with anyone. She right. The staff actually had to interact and do more security than Steve ever did. Yeah, because he didn't do anything and he was useless and didn't interact. So yeah, it was really like Thiru's risk was, I'm going to get her to establish that Steve was the security officer that was there, and instead, it, <laughs> yeah, it was he was actually referred to as useless Steve in the courtroom. This was a major, unintentional blow to the state. My understandings of the rules of court are that during cross-examination, you cannot question out of the scope of the direct examination. But Thiru went for it anyway, and the judge allowed it, and Thiru paid for it. So after Ms. Hambule stepped down, Justin called David Irwin. I'll explain in detail in a few seconds exactly what happened, but I wanted you to hear what my immediate reaction was to after David Irwin's direct testimony. Justin brought in a witness named David Irwin, 
who is a renowned prosecutor and defense attorney for like 30 years. Uh, he worked for the Department of Justice, district attorneys, all that. Just fucking destroyed the state regarding Asia and the alibi. I'll give you all the more details later. It was so bad that uh, Thiru asked for a break in the middle of it to regroup. He's not even done with direct yet. And I'm really, really excited to see how Thiru handles uh, crossing him because he's going to rip him to shreds. So it was awesome. I wanted to come out real quick and tell you guys what was going on. But this is, it was really, really good. So under the direct testimony of David Irwin, he very clearly and intelligently and concisely stated that there is no possible explanation that could be explained away under strategy for Christina Gutierrez to not have contacted Asia and investigated her. He was citing case law off the top of his head. He specifically mentioned the Strickland law regarding ineffective assistance of counsel. And in no uncertain terms, his direct testimony was that Christina Gutierrez was ineffective in her duties and under the law by not contacting any alibi witness under any circumstance and at least investigate them. He said that there's no way that this could be a strategy because you cannot have strategy without information. And furthermore, he was a great witness because he was actually in the courtroom during Asia McLean's testimony. So he heard all of it. And he further explained that after watching Asia McLean testify, that he absolutely believes that her testimony would have made a significant difference in the outcome at the trial. He said she was a great witness. He said that as a defense attorney, she is the alibi witness you're always looking for. She's intelligent. She's meticulous. She keeps good records. She has no motivation other than to tell the truth. He thought she was great on the stand, and he reiterated again that her testimony would have changed the outcome of this trial. You could not have a stronger testimony than what David Irwin provided. He was solid. He was sharp. And by the time he was done, I was thinking that Thero might not even cross-examine him. As much as Thero had been tripping over himself during this entire hearing, he had to know that David Irwin was going to tear him apart. But I never got to see the cross-examination of David Irwin, because when we came back from the break, Thero requested that he step down and that they wait to cross him until Monday, because the state cell phone expert, FBI Special Agent Chad Fitzgerald was only available on that afternoon, that he wouldn't be available on Monday, so he requested that he be able to testify that day on Friday afternoon. So Chad Fitzgerald was the state's first witness of their own. And when Chad stepped up, Thiru had made big poster boards, some of them six, seven feet long, that he had posted all over the courtroom with blow-ups of different reports. He had one with the fax cover sheet on it, he had the subscriber activity report that was submitted as Exhibit 31 at trial, and he had another different version of a subscriber activity report on another poster. During direct examination, Thiru was leading Fitzgerald, with the use of multicolored highlighters, to explain how the fax cover sheet did not apply to Exhibit 31 at trial. The entire direct testimony was aimed at saying that the other report was actually a subscriber activity report and that the one used at trial is actually called a call detail report. And they did this by taking the key, the information provided in the fax cover sheet that mentioned specific columns on the report it was referring to and using the highlighter to show that some of those columns don't actually exist on Exhibit 31. It was a horse and pony show and it went on for, well, too long because I ended up missing the end of it because I had to bounce out of there to catch my plane. So when I left, Chad Fitzgerald was still standing up front next to the posters with a highlighter highlighting columns. 
And he had stated pretty clearly that he didn't believe that the fax cover sheet that said that on the subscriber activity reports that incoming calls cannot be used for location didn't apply to Exhibit 31. That was the bulk of his testimony. And he had started explaining why. And the why had to do with a column in that other report called location, which he says refers to something called a switch. I'll point out that at this point, I did have to leave. I caught my plane, so I had to get all this information from Susan and Saad after the fact. And so from here on out, everything I've gotten is from people who were at the hearing because I was not there personally from this point forward. So Special Agent Chad Fitzgerald's explanation for why the incoming call disclaimer was on that fax cover sheet was that sometimes incoming calls can show a different switch than the one that was actually used to make the call not a specific cell phone tower. And he went on to explain what a switch is, is like a main hub for hundreds of cell phone towers. So like there's a Washington, D.C. switch, and then there's all the towers in Washington, D.C. flow through that switch. And then there's the Baltimore switch, and all of the towers in the Baltimore area flow through that switch. So he went into great detail explaining those things. And from what I heard, Thiru felt really confident after his testimony and probably feeling pretty good about the gauntlet he had thrown down to the defense's expert the day before. I'm thinking that he doesn't feel so good about that anymore. So I'm going to walk you through the notes that I have from everyone I spoke to after the end of Chad Fitzgerald's testimony and Cross. Under Cross, Justin Brown ripped him to shreds. So Fitzgerald says that Exhibit 31 is not a subscriber activity report. If you remember that whole deal with the highlighters I told you about. Well, the thing is that that sheet is titled, printed right on it, Subscriber Activity Report. So AT&T, who created the sheet, titled it a Subscriber Activity Report. They sent a fax along with that sheet that said, you need this key in order to read the Subscriber Activity Report that was attached to that fax. But yet he still claimed, nope, that's not a Subscriber Activity Report. He also testified that Abel Ronowitz's testimony was accurate except for one thing, and that was the fact that he said that one call where there was the pound sign, Ronowitz had testified that that was Anon calling to check his voicemail, when in fact that pound sign signifies that the call was not answered and it was transferred to voicemail, not someone retrieving a voicemail. And this is where Justin went on the offensive. So Fitzgerald said that Ronowitz misread that detail, and then Justin asked him, how he misread that detail. And Fitzgerald said, well, he didn't have the fax cover sheet that explained in the key what that pound sign meant. So it's understandable that he would miss the detail, which Justin responded saying, you mean the key on that fax cover sheet that doesn't apply to that document? He needed that in order to read that pound sign correctly? And again, Fitzgerald just kept denying that that was a subscriber activity report for what I'm told over and over again. No matter what Justin asked him, he would not answer the questions, and he just kept saying, that's not a subscriber activity report. No, that key does not go with that document, over and over and over again. So for those of you that aren't real familiar with how being an expert witness works, this is a really good way to absolutely destroy your credibility. A solid expert witness is someone who is honest, they are fair, and they don't appear swayed, meaning they'll answer whatever questions are asked of them, Regardless of which side it helps, that's what makes you credible. Well, Chad Fitzgerald did not do this, refused to do it, in fact. 
So then Justin latches on to the fact that Fitzgerald says that what the reason it says incoming calls could not be accurate for location is because that was referring to which switch the call was made from. And Justin again attacked. He asked Fitzgerald to explain again what a switch was. That a switch was the hub for all of these different cell phone towers. And so he asked Fitzgerald, if you're telling me that the incoming calls on this sheet may not show the right switch, and all of these hundreds of towers fall under these switches, then explain to me how we can be sure that it was on the correct tower. But Fitzgerald still would not answer the questions. He still would not acknowledge that he might be wrong and that Waranowitz's testimony may have been false, may have been inaccurate. In fact, Fitzgerald goes on the record over and over again. And again, he says he still maintains that Abel Ronowitz's testimony in the trial was indeed accurate. And it's at that point that Justin Brown brings out the rest of the call logs and asks him to explain something. There were two calls on that day on the call logs. They were 27 minutes apart. One of the calls pinged a tower right next to Woodlawn. And 27 minutes later, there was a ping off of the DuPont Circle Tower in Washington, D.C., an incoming call. Any of you who are following along on social media during the hearing, I'm sure you saw the memes about helicopters and were wondering what they were about. Well, it was because of this. Because Justin was hammering away on Fitzgerald, asking him, if incoming calls are accurate, can you explain to me how Adnan Syed could have made a call from the Woodlawn School and then 27 minutes later make a call from DuPont Circle in D.C.? For those of you that aren't familiar with the geography, it's about an hour or more drive from Woodlawn to Washington, D.C. And that's when Justin asked him if he's aware of the fact of whether or not Anand Syed had a helicopter on January 13th, 1999. And the most amazing part about this is that Fitzgerald would still not budge. He would not come off of his testimony. He just said that he'd have to look into that further. He'd have to do more research on it. And then furthermore, he asked for a conference with a judge at one point. He told him he needs to talk to him because he feels like he's been duped. He said that the document that Justin Brown presented to him was incomplete. There were things missing from it, and there was no way that he could read off of that document, which that was probably the best thing that Chad Fitzgerald could have said for the defense because the document that was presented to him was the exact document that the state disclosed to Christina Gutierrez. We couldn't have called up our own expert to give a better testimony than that, that he said he couldn't read it and he couldn't get the proper information because the document was incomplete, and he believed that it was done purposefully to dupe him, which is exactly what we're claiming happened to Christina Gutierrez. That is the Brady violation. Another point in the cross-examination of Fitzgerald was the fact that, oh, by the way, he wrote his opinion, or rather it seems like Theroux might have written it for him, before he ever got a single document. So Justin asked him when he was contacted by Theroux to discuss the case. And he said it was after January 1st. And then he asked him when he received all of the documents on the case to start reviewing. And he said it was at least a week or two later. Now keep in mind that under direct examination, he pointed out that he had reviewed all of these documents and used them and analyzed them and researched them to make his opinion. Well, that blew up in his face a little bit too when he went on the record saying that he didn't have the documents until after at least January 7th. And then Justin presented him with a document from the state that presented Fitzgerald's opinion, saying that he would completely prove the state's case in this manner. And he asked Fitzgerald to read the date on that document. And the document was dated January 5th. 
That's a minimum of two days before he ever received a single case document. He had already formed his opinion, and it had already been disclosed by the state. So from what I'm told, at one point, Justin even asked him if Thiru wrote the document for him. And how could he be an expert and give an opinion on something when he hadn't even seen a single case document yet? And Fitzgerald's only explanation for that was he had had a long conversation with Thiru. And Justin continued hammering away at him, asking him if that's how he works as an expert witness, and that all Justin would have had to do is call him and give him his opinion, and Fitzgerald would have changed his testimony. Apparently it got pretty heated. Thiru was pissed, Fitzgerald was flustered and pissed, and they finally broke for the weekend. So day four picked up with some bench conferences. I mentioned way back on day two that when librarian Michelle Hamuel referred to the security staff as useless and the internet exploded with the hashtag useless Steve, people had started making t-shirts about useless Steve. So Thiru had requested that when his witness, Steve, comes on the stand later that day, that he only be referred to as officer. Brown countered by stating that there's no precedent on the books for an anonymous witness. Thiru came back and said that Steve had been cyber-bullied and that he didn't want to expose his identity. And Justin Brown followed up with pointing out that the state had no problem doing a press conference trying to destroy the credibility of Asia McLean after she testified. When it was all said and done with, they agreed to refer to Steve as officer. Once court got back in session, Chad Fitzgerald was back on the stand. He'd had the whole weekend to regroup and research, but his testimony still only ended up helping the defense. He couldn't come up with a viable explanation as to why two calls 27 minutes apart could have pinged towers that are over an hour apart. He continued to not answer any questions. And at the end of the day, the best way that I heard his testimony described was that it was just an absolute disaster for the state. And having served as an expert witness myself, I would assume that Chad Fitzgerald's expert witness career is now over. One thing that you never do as an expert witness is show bias avoid questions, and be straight-out misleading. And Chad Fitzgerald did all of those things on the stand. So after Fitzgerald stepped down, David Irwin came back on the stand for cross-examination, and he was just as solid under cross as he was in direct. He said that Asia McLean, quote, cried out to be investigated, and that without information, there can be no strategy. So this was the state's only chance to get away from the ineffective assistance of counsel claim. They had to try to present an argument that the decision not to investigate Asia was a strategic one. And Thiru just kept coming back over and over and over again with crazy hypothetical situations, trying to get David Irwin to say that, yes, in that instance, you could not investigate a witness. And he never did. And Irwin was sharp. At some point after being asked the same question in different forms over and over again, Irwin said, if there's somebody on the space station that says they saw me in the library, I would not be constitutionally mandated to call NASA. However, I would have my law clerk determine whether or not that person is on the Earth. Irwin's final statement on the matter was that there is no way that the defense team should not have investigated Asia McLean, and also that they were constitutionally obligated to do so. At the end of the day, Saad Chowdhury called me to give me his take on how things went that day. Justin was able to really get him on the same information that he provided earlier, meaning that incoming calls were not reliable. He used the same example how one tower pinged in DuPont Circle and then 27 minutes later it pinged in Woodlawn. And he goes, how is that possible? 
can you explain that? And then the expert goes, well, I'll have to do some research, meaning something's not reliable, something doesn't make sense, hence I have to do some research. So with that, Justin used the same point over and over again saying, okay, now at the end of the trial period on Friday, you had gotten up saying, judge, I need to speak with you. I feel like I've been duped. Something is wrong. And what happened was he had a copy of the document that were the cell data records or the cell phone records, and the date was cropped out. Some of it wasn't legible. And basically, he was feeling that Justin had duped him in giving him faulty documents. And Justin actually turned the tables on him and say, would you believe that these are the actual documents that Christina Gutierrez received? Oh, wow. You are getting upset with me because you can't understand these documents because some parts are cropped out. It's not legible. You can't, you know, understand what's going on. Then how do you expect Christina Gutierrez, who's a lawyer, to understand the same document? So it was just amazing how that happened. That was a huge turnaround. Overall, Fitzgerald's testimony, win for the state or win for defense? Definitely win for defense. So then after Fitzgerald testified, Mr. Irwin was back on the stand, right? Definitely. That was a great moment because you knew you had a legend as far as in Maryland law. And he was just representing the law and he was representing, you know, responsibilities of an attorney. And um, he was on the right side of justice and he stood by it. You know, sometimes when someone is not, you know, motivated by promotions or motivated by career opportunities, aka hint, hint, Diru, you know, stick by your guns and you say what's right and what's wrong. And he was like, Christina was a great attorney in the 80s, but she definitely, you know, took a fall and she lost control and she did not know what she was doing at the point where, you know, her illness had actually taken over. And he said that she didn't do her duty as far as just following up on a very credible alibi witness. Simple as that. And then after that, we did have Useful Steve. Useful Steve? Yes, sir. Useful Steve. Okay, how was that? In the fact that God bless that poor guy. I mean, he literally was used by Firu, and he was just a pawn in all of this. Detectives, two different times, I think it was two police officers, one time visited him. Second time, Thiru and him visited, another detective visited, and they really kind of put him in a position where they wrote his statements for him, and he signed. Are you talking about his statements from back in 99? They wrote his statements for him? ridiculous. And yes, 100%. To the point where this poor man had to sign a document stating that he can confirm he did not see Adnan Syed in the Woodlawn Library on January 13th, 1999, in 2016. Oh, so he didn't sign he any... signing this document. He didn't sign any statement back in 99. This was all done... None. And the funny thing is, Thiru and his detectives took a couple of yearbook pages and showed him pictures, and they were like, do you see anyone? Do you recognize any of these people? I mean, it was really a mockery. It was pretty funny. But it was, you know, Chris Nieto, he completely discredited Mr. Useful Steve. And he said, let's be honest. This document says, 
I for certain know that Adnan Sayed wasn't in that library. He goes, Mr. Uh, Mr. Steve, do you smoke? And he goes, yes. And he goes, so you took cigarette breaks, right? You know, you'd step out four or five minutes, have a quick one and come on back. He's like, yeah. And he goes, and then you would patrol inside and then you'd also patrol outside. Yeah. But he's like, so how could you see everyone? And he goes, also, you weren't a part of the management at the library, so you had nothing to do with the recording of the tapes or the surveillance cameras. Hence, you weren't that useful. So honestly, when it comes down to it, he was useful for the defense, which is excellent, completely discredited. And it was just completely shown that Firu had did his whole document for him, and he just signed it, poor guy. But he, he didn't he didn't agree though. He said, No, I'm not for certain. There's no way I can remember. It was seventeen years ago. So both sides had rested, and day four was to be the closing arguments from both the defense and the state. I'm told Justin gave a clear and concise about one hour long closing argument. He told the judge that during the course of this hearing that he did exactly what he told him he would do during his opening arguments. He had proven that Asia McLean was a solid alibi witness that could have changed the outcome at trial. And furthermore, that Christina Gutierrez was indeed constitutionally obligated to at least investigate Asia McLean, thus proving the ineffective assistance of counsel claim. And also that it was a clear Brady violation for the state to have withheld the facts cover sheet that clearly stated, in all capital, bold letters, that incoming calls could not be used to determine location. He said he proved that that document did indeed apply to the subscriber activity report that was submitted as Exhibit 31, and also that it was never disclosed to the defense by the state. Thier's closing arguments went on for over two hours. In fact, they had to take a lunch break in the middle of his closing arguments. They were going on for so long. I wasn't there to hear the closing arguments, but from what I'm told, they were all over the place. He was misstating facts, misstating things that actually happened in the hearing, and just ended the hearing in the same way that he began it. Full of shit. Anand's close friend Krista, who you've all heard before on this show, was finally able to make it down to the city and attend the final day of the hearing. She was there for the closing arguments. She called me Tuesday night to let me know what she thought about how things went. Yeah, of course it's a little emotional. I'm just seeing the smile on his face kind of eases everything, though. Because yeah. I feel like, you know, he looked, he kept looking back a couple of times and he, He'd like make eye, eye contact and wave at me. Like <laughs> it was, it was just nice that he knew that I was there and he seemed to be happy about it. And I was just glad that he knew that he had support from somebody other than you know, the people that have been in the courtroom every day all along. Right. Yes. <laughs> Susan and I were joking and saying, he's probably looking over at us thinking, who are the two white folks sitting with my parents? <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like the prosecution was sort of all over the place. Like, they jumped from one thing to another to something else. And they took a couple of jabs at Justin specifically, which, you know, you could just see the facial expression on Justin. And he's, like, kind of like, what the fuck? <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Like, where is this coming from? But, it, you know, he he did, Justin made it a point in his rebuttal just to say that it's sort of like he didn't appreciate, if you will, some of the comments that he was insinuating when he when they were doing their closing arguments. And the judge, obviously, had heard enough of it at one point because he told Thoreau, like, you, you need to wrap this up. So all in all, I believe that the hearing went very well. 
I am cautiously optimistic that Anon will indeed be granted a new trial. There were a lot of games played at this hearing. Intentions got very high at times. But the bottom line is, 90% of that hearing was theatrics, mostly on Thera's part. I was very, very impressed with Justin Brown's performance. One trap that I've seen a lot of attorneys get sucked into is getting trapped by those theatrics, arguing points that don't need to be argued. And I believe Thera was trying to bait him into those arguments. But Justin was smart enough to know that all that would do would be to muddy the waters. There were only two issues that needed to be heard in this hearing. Was the fact that Christina Gutierrez never contacted Agent McLean as an alibi witness ineffective assistance of counsel? And I think they very concisely and strongly proved that point beyond any doubt whatsoever. I honestly have to say that I would be stunned if the judge does not rule that that was clearly ineffective assistance of counsel. And that right there is enough. That is enough to get Anon a new trial. And like I said, there was a lot of theatrics and there was a lot of muddying of those waters by Thiru. But you have to remember that throughout this entire trial, the state only brought two witnesses of their own. One was Chad Fitzgerald. And from what it sounds like, he was completely discredited and actually gave testimony that would prove Justin Brown's point that he was trying to make. And the other was the security guard, Steve who I didn't mention previously, but he did testify at the end of day four. And as you heard Saad mention, he turned out to be a good guy and actually became a solid witness for the defense. Because when he got on the stand, he basically recanted what Thiru had said about him. He said that he actually could not tell you for sure whether or not Anand Syed and Asia McLean were in the library. He does not remember if there are cameras and that he wouldn't know if there were or not because it wasn't his job to check the tapes. Thiru had presented documentation that he was, in fact, interviewed by the police six weeks after the murder occurred, and he honestly testified and said that I don't even remember ever talking to the police. So he was of no use to the state whatsoever. Fitzgerald was of no use to the state whatsoever. And the way that our legal system works, thankfully, is that the judge does not get to rule on just his opinion or his gut feeling. He can only rule on the testimony and the evidence that is presented in court. The state did not present any evidence or any testimony that supported their claim. And anything that they attempted to do was sharply shut down by Justin Brown. When you don't take in any preconceived notions or any preconceived biases, and you just look at the evidence and the testimony that was presented, I believe that the judge has no other choice but to rule in the favor of Adnan and grant him a new trial. And the second point that had to be proven in this trial, and keep in mind that these are mutually exclusive, they don't both have to be proven, just one or the other. The other was the fact that it was a Brady violation for the state not to disclose the fax cover sheet to Christina Gutierrez before the trial. And again, both the state's and the defense's witnesses made it very clear that that fax cover sheet did indeed belong to that subscriber activity report. And both of them stated that you could not properly read that subscriber activity report or analyze it without the fax cover sheet containing the key. And throughout the hearing, Thiru never claimed that the state did indeed disclose the fax cover sheet to the defense. They made some argument that they had an open records policy and that Christina Gutierrez could have came and got it anytime she wanted to. So I don't know how exactly the judge will rule on that, 
But based on the evidence that was presented at the hearing, I believe that the judge would have to rule that that was indeed a clear-cut Brady violation. And that would also guarantee Adnan Syed a new trial. At the end of the day, I'm very, very confident about the outcome of this hearing. Now, I have to mention, as I always do, that I am not an attorney and I am not a legal expert. So take my opinion for what it's worth. But in my opinion, the way this hearing went down, if there was ever a chance for justice for Adnan Syed and for Heyman Lee, this is that time. Thank you to Johnny Rose of Slightly Subversive Music for creating all of the music for the show. And again, don't forget, you can go to truthandjusticemusic.com for a preview of Johnny Rose's new album, Truth and Justice, The Music. And again, I would ask that any of you that like the music on the show, please go check out the album, maybe purchase some of the songs or the whole album, and show your support to Johnny. Johnny has, over almost a year now, supplied all the music for the show free of charge. And all of the proceeds for the sale of the soundtrack go directly to Johnny to pay him back for his efforts. Thank you to Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. Thank you to today's sponsors, Stamps.com and Squarespace, for providing all of the funding for the program. And thank all of you for sticking this out all the way through to the end. Your efforts have been worth it. We finally managed to get this case back in court, and we finally have a chance for justice. And along those lines, if you haven't listened to the Kenny Snow episodes or the Smith County case that begin with episode 201, please take the time to listen to those few episodes and get involved in that case as well. My hope is that when this is all done, and we finally get a non-release from prison, and we finally bring justice in this case, that it doesn't stop there. If the only person that we care about is a non-Syed, then this movement falls flat on its face. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of people out there that are in the same situation as Adnan, and they all need our support. In the case that I'm currently working in Smith County involves more than just Kenny Snow. There have been injustices spread across the board. The case is full of corruption. It's full of confusion, and I could use all of your help to get to the bottom of it. Keep sending me all of your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. If you have a case that you'd like investigated, you can send that to cases at truthandjusticepod.com. Follow me on Facebook at Truth and Justice with Bob Ruff. You can also follow the show on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. However you do it, please keep in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.
You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, oh, oh. Auto Parts. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.